Welcome to Shed, a podcast brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the fall of 2020, I interviewed members of our Martha's Vineyard community about the impact and implications of race in their lives. As a practicing therapist, I was interested in exploring the unique experiences that shape the lives of each guest and influence the way they see themselves and the world. We chose the name Shed to encourage listeners to do away with old beliefs that no longer serve us and to shed some light on systemic racism and its effects on us as individuals as well as the communities in which we live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello again, and welcome to Shed. I'm your host, Eric Adams. We are very fortunate today to have with us Jessica Harris. For those of you who are not familiar with Jessica, she is a food historian and an international lecturer. Welcome to Shed, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jessica, for people who are not familiar with your history and your achievements, can you just give us a little bit about who you are? What's become important to you over the years? Oh, goodness. Who I am, we're still working on that one. You know, I mean, my mother, who I increasingly realized was a very wise woman, said, I'm a divine work in progress, Hmm. and I'm still in progress. I like to think I'm still in progress, and so I don't really like to take on too many definitions other than things where the bow is tied. Mm -hmm. I have recently retired from teaching. I was a professor. I taught English and French in the Sikh program at Queens College Mm -hmm. for 50 years. Wow. So that's bow tied, not going Mm -hmm. back to that. Mm -hmm. 50 years is enough of anything. 50 years is enough. Yeah. It was like, that's, I can't say done and dusted, but it's done. It may not yet be dusted. I've been a cookbook author My first cookbook came out in 1985, so Mm -hmm. I can't do the math, but you can. Long time. And I've done basically 12 books on the food of the African continent and what happened to that food after it left the continent. Hmm. That's 12. I've done six other books. So I've done a book on French textbook, as French as it is spoken outside of France as a reader. Mm-hmm. So French, au-delà de l'hexagon, as the French would say, so beyond the hexagon. So French as it's spoken in, on the African continent, French as it's spoken in the Caribbean, French as it's spoken in North America, and so on and so oh, forth. Oh, oui, oui. Oui, oui, voilà, mm-hmm. voilà, uh-huh, <laughs> ça se comprend maintenant. Mm-hmm. I also have done a guidebook to Paris that I sort of edited and oversaw. I've done a third world women's beauty book. Wow. About beauty secrets from women, women of color, as we would say now. Mm-hmm. And then my most recent book is called Vintage Postcards from the African World in the Dignity of Their Work and the Joy of Their Play. Hmm. And that's about my postcard collection because I collect antiquarian postcards. And so it's images of people from the African continent with food and things of that sort. And then festivities. So that one is the most recent, and that just came out in May. That's all? <laughs> for now. All for now. I'm working on some other lot. things. That's I got, I got some other stuff going. Any idea where your passions, your interests for food and language came from? In a word, my mother, probably. Hmm. My mother was 
a northern girl. She did not grow up in the South. My father was from Tennessee. My mother was from New Jersey, born in Elizabeth, raised in Plainfield. Mm -hmm. And she used to tell tales of being at, I guess it must have been grade school in Plainfield. She spent her entire life wanting to speak French Hmm. and was in French class and was smart. But the teacher would say, sit down, Rhoda. Black people can't speak French. Their lips are too big. Wow. And she, at that point in her life, vowed that if she had a child, that child would speak French. And so I speak French fluently. And that's been vindicated. Hmm. My mother was also a trained dietitian. She got a degree in dietetics from Pratt back in the 1930s. I'm not sure of the exact year. We've been asking some of our guests who their greatest teachers have been. And it sounds like mom must have been yours. Mom was up there in many, many ways. My father taught me other things. So, I mean, they were... I used to call them the Rhoda and Jesse Road Show, but really they're kind of almost more the dynamic duo. What was it about the food of the African diaspora that spoke to you? I don't know. I think it was incremental in a way. I told the story of my speaking French. But one of the things that my parents did that probably marked me the most for life was they sent me to the United Nations International School. But what happened was one of my oldest friends in the world is a Shivite Brahmin from Madras, India. Another one is Bengali from Chennai. You know, I have friends in Wales. I have friends all over the place. That sort of internationalism has very much been a mark of my life. And so when I went to work on my doctoral dissertation, I had begun to be very, very interested in the African diaspora. I was actually the travel editor for Essence magazine in the late 1970s for a couple of years. So because it was Essence, and because Essence had its own particular focus, I was able to travel to different places. But then your mouth, or my mouth, started to tell me stories. I could, you know, be in Senegal one week and then maybe in South Carolina another week. And it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Hmm. I had that. Mm, mm. What's, you know, my mouth, it's stuff is dancing around in your mouth going, we got a story to tell, you know. And sooner or later, you're, you're listening. You're forced to listen to that story. You know, what is the story that's being told? Why is this story being told? What is my mouth telling me? And then because my training and background were academic, it was like, okay, hit the books. And then I also learned rather rapidly that it's not necessarily in the books. That particularly when you look at the history of Africans in diaspora, not only in the United States, but in the hemisphere, you really are reading between the lines. You're reading those things unsaid those silences. And when you start studying the silences, you begin to hear them go, yeah, you know, and this, and that, and think about this. And it's all very, very important. Jessica, as you look back, can you tell us a little bit about what your biggest learnings have been? I think the thing that's important to realize, particularly as African-Americans, 
because we are from the United States. There are other African Americans. They live in Canada, they live in the Caribbean, they live in Brazil, they live everywhere. So we tend to think of ourselves as monolithic and unique. And when you look at the African diaspora, when you look at the transatlantic slave trade, we're not. When you think about the transatlantic slave trade, we are not the country that had the largest influx of enslaved people. That was Brazil by far. And Brazil had the longest tenure. I mean, you know, it started in the 16th century and went all the way through till well into the 19th century. But when we look at it in the United States, we are always sort of think that we are all there is. You know, we are the African Americans. We are that. But this whole question is hemispheric. It goes all the way into South America and down in South America. But I mean, when you start to think about this, then you realize that that is an extraordinary power that we have not yet really tapped into. Because if we start talking to each other, if we start learning languages, if we start understanding that we are a part of a much larger collective, then that starts to swivel the world in other ways. And that's, I think, one of the things, because I really am quite peculiar in, in lots of ways, but I think that becomes then one of the things that makes me love the African diaspora so much. Because there is more that keeps us together than that takes us apart. What makes it so hard for people to see these kind of connections? Because they are so deep and old. Well, I think as a nation, this whole question of, you know, America manifest destiny, see the shining sea, we will travel. We are geographically ignorant. Something can happen in Cotonou Benin. And people will stop going to Nairobi, Kenya, because that's Africa. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's mm -hmm. like a five-hour plane ride away. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, I think Americans in general are geographically challenged. We can get on a plane, ride six hours, get off. We're spending the same money. We're speaking the same language. We're watching the same old awful television. Mm -hmm. Because of that, we don't travel the way people perhaps might travel on the continent itself in Africa. Mm -hmm. You know, people speak more than one language. Mm -hmm. They have to. In Europe, more than likely, people speak more than one language. But here is like, if you can't tell it to me in English, I, I don't know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And so all of that is a part of what isolates and insulates us, not necessarily in a good way in terms of African-Americans as well, because we do have that. Americanness in large quotation marks, in that we don't tend to speak languages unless they are part of our heritage. We're coming out of it a little bit, but even in terms of our tourism, we go to English-speaking places. We don't go to places where they speak other languages, for mm -hmm. the most part. Mm -hmm. And so all of that then tempers our gaze and, you know, influences not only who we think we are, but how we look at everyone else. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about how this idea of untold stories plays out in a culinary sense in America? In my book, High on the Hog, I talk about 
George Washington's enslaved chef, Hercules. And when I was researching it back then, I didn't know very much about him. But what has happened in the interim, and that book came out maybe nine years ago, there have been books written about him. We have found his last name. He escaped. He escaped from Washington, and Washington went to great expense to try to find him, never did. These are stories that we are just, you know, knowing. God bless Annette Gordon-Reed, who did the Hemings of Monticello. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole idea of that family, that basically dynasty, is astounding. I was thinking of Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 project mm. and such pushback from America. Why would that be? Because <laughs> it's painful. I remember writing that enslavement is a keloid scar on the face of America. Mm. Let's just deal with it. America has its for want of a better word, tribal markings. There are serious scars. It starts not with the Africans. It starts with the indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the raping, the pillaging, the destroying, the pandemonium unleashed, then nobody really wants to hear about that. You know, people like happy stories. Mm -hmm. You've got to edit, select. Some sage on the African continent said at one point, it will be a very different history when the lion writes the history of the hunt. Can you explain how soul food in America is representative of black history in America? Gosh. First of all, soul food is a term that I struggle with. Why? Because every culture has its soul food. And soul food as a name, if you will, is a relatively recent phenomenon. I think it came into being in the 60s. Maybe it's earlier, but arguably it's a 20th century term. I mean, the bottom line is we just called it dinner. Hmm. You know, it wasn't soul food. But I think that the problem comes with how you are made to feel about that which you eat, and then if you factor in and on it, enslavement. I think it's the enslavement and its connection with enslavement that has for many people demonized soul food. I mean, the Chinese eat chicken feet and happy about it. Chitlins, andouille in French, they make a sausage. It is as funky as anybody's chitlins. Hmm. And they make it, they slice it. They also do an andouillette that is a, a casing stuffed with that stuff mm -hmm. that they deep fry. But it is a delicacy. And you can sit in a bistro in Paris. But aren't you know. they borrowing that from our culture? No. No? No, no, no. It's no, unique no. to them? It, they, they do it too. I mean, you know, this um, nose-to-tail eating is not unique to our culture. It's unique to people who, who are frugal, people who make use of everything. I mean, you know, the French eat tripe, tripe à la mode de camp. You know, this is what I mean again by our thinking it's us. Mm -hmm. 
Jessica, you alluded to the demonization of those kinds of foods. Can you talk about their connection with enslavement? I did some consulting work at a hotel chain in Barbados years ago. And I remember there was a young chef, and she was like, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly cook Barbadian food. My food is foie gras, and my food is uh, caviar, and my food is, I don't know, tiramisu, whatever, 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 but anything other than the traditional food of her ancestors. That's problematic. Because it also then means that these foods are demonized. We live in a society where we think this needs elevation. If you ask any black person whose grandmother could cook, because everybody's grandmother couldn't cook, but if you ask a black person whose grandmother could cook, what do they think about their grandmother's food? They will go into rhapsodies. Yes. Church just said amen, okay? They go into rhapsodies about it. And yet, why do you feel this food's got to be elevated? So a lot of that is mindset. It's not taste. It may need to be plated differently. You know, the French say, les yeux mangent première. I mean, you, the, the eyes eat first. Maybe that's the large quotation marks elevation you're talking about, but be clear that it's not about the taste. It's not about the recipe. It may be about a connection to a history that is discomforting. Part of what we're trying to do here at Shed is to shed a little light on different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Shed the old stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Shed your skin. Mm -hmm. From what you're saying, Jessica, there's no one singular agent of this demonization. These are vestiges of enslavement. That is my perception. I'm always astounded. I have a letter from my father's older half-brother. When I was born, he gave me a leather-bound, two leather-bound volumes. One was for photographs, and there was one for family history. In it, this uncle says, I am as proud of my slave ancestors as those Mayflower descendants mm. are of theirs. And it's like, Uncle Bill, God bless you. This was 1948 that he wrote that. That was an amazing statement in 1948. And I think that's what we are not yet at, particularly with a lot of people. If you think about the ingenuity that it took to just simply survive. Stay alive. If you think about the intelligent it took to negotiate those social systems. If you think about just the degree of linguistic fluency it took to communicate in a language that was not your own, that no one was teaching you. Mm -hmm. If you think about all of those things, it's like, my God, these people survived the unsurvivable. Where do we need to start to change that, Jessica? Is it who is telling the stories or the stories that need to be told? Both. Stevie Wonder, epigraph, you better tell your story well, because if you lie, it will come to pass. Hmm. To which I will add a Yoruba Odu. The Odu are the, um, the religious writings of the Yoruba peoples. And the Odu is Obara. And Obara says, and the lie will become the truth. Well, if that's not poignant for today. But then you've got to also take 
maybe the Christian Bible in that and look at that, which then says, and the truth will set you free. Mm. So we need to do all of that backing up. We need to look at the lie that became the truth. We need to dismember, if you will, and I don't really mean dismember, but I mean like almost peeling the onion skins away, the layers of that lie that became the truth to get to that kernel. And then maybe that is the truth that will set us free. So Jessica, if we could leave the realm of food for a minute, I was wondering where you were when you learned about the murder of George Floyd and how that has affected you. I decided at the beginning of this that I had one thing to do, which was try to stay alive and pretty much by whatever means necessary. Mm -hmm. So one of the means necessary for me personally in this crazy news cycle, constant thrumming, was to turn it off. So I got the news fourth hand. Mm -hmm. I am emotionally incapable of looking at the video. I can't, there is nothing in my being that would want to see that. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how to articulate the horror. Words fail. The awfulness, the, the unmitigated horrificness of that mm -hmm. can't you know i can't i can't i understand i just can't I, understand. I, I i i and i know it i know it's real i i, I can't do that mm -hmm. how have you felt about the the protests and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement? I mean, the bottom line is I'm old. I mean, I don't feel old. I like to think I don't act old, but somewhere in my head, I know I'm 72. Mm -hmm. I can't take it to the streets. And there's something extraordinarily frustrating about that. We did this. I know. This is like, Rewind. I heard the marchers go by in front of my house. And I couldn't go out my front door because mm -hmm. I wanted to stay alive. Did you feel heartened by the fact that this generation I was carrying on the work? that they are. I am heartened that they are. You think we're getting closer to the, the goal or the aspirations of the civil rights movement of the 60s? I honestly don't know. I am terrified. I see your emotion. I am terrified of what I'm looking at. Me too. I think we all are. Because I have no idea what's coming. And this is really not how I plan to die. Do you have hope? You got to have hope. You got to have hope. Otherwise, you curl up into a fetal position and, you know, mm -hmm. figure out a way to go. No, I have hope. I have hope. If I didn't have hope, I wouldn't be, you know, here. If I didn't have hope, I wouldn't be trying to get back to Brooklyn to figure out a way to keep on keeping on. I wouldn't be trying to write, you know, A, a book, B, a book proposal, which really involves hope. Um, 
And, um, you know, I've got a ton of projects which I hope will keep me busy so I don't lose my mind. Hmm. There's much good coming out of this madness. And it is madness. Jessica, we're really grateful for your being with us today, getting to know you and sharing some of your life with us. And we hope that we will see you again on Shed. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. Thank you again for listening. And if you like what you heard, please share our podcast with your friends and family. Shed is produced by Amy Schumer, Renee Richardson, Jack Ebby, Tony Phillips, Chris Fisher, and the Vineyard Gazette.